You're listening to Spoonie Tea Time, where we talk about faith, books, and chronic illness. I'm Holly Conklin. I was diagnosed with arthritis shortly after graduating university, and this radically shaped my life, my faith, and my way of interacting with the world. Join me for a glimpse into the life of the chronically ill. I have not provided a health update in a long time, and boy have things changed. I think the last time I discussed my health, I mentioned that I was starting to experiment more with using my hands despite the pain, and I'm happy to report that my hands seem to be doing pretty well despite me using my hands almost as much as I would normally. They hurt all the time still, which is kind of annoying, but the pain seems to have leveled out, and unless I'm on my phone a ton or the computer a ton, it's mostly manageable. Although it still kind of wigs me out that I have pain in the first place, even if it's not bothering me, it's kind of like, where the flip is this coming from if I don't have inflammation in my hands? I don't talk to my rheumatologist until May, and frankly, I don't know how much I trust the medical system to give me a good understanding of what's going on, but whatever. In the meantime, I've been mostly addressing my back pain and my energy levels. My energy has been such a problem for me for a long time now to the point where it was often hard moving from room to room and it was hard getting ready for bed. It got to the point where I started getting ready around 5 or 6 if I could because I knew if I waited much longer, then it would just be a monumental amount of willpower to even make it to my bedroom, let alone get ready for bed. But just in the last month or two, I feel like my fatigue is finally starting to ease off enough that I can actually do things around the house for the first time in a very long time, which is helpful in getting even more energy back because now I can cook more and exercise more and do all this stuff that supports health and wellness. So I'm very thankful and excited for that, but it is still an adjustment. I'm still learning what my limitations are, and also, my goodness, my house is falling apart. I have basically not been able to help out around the house for three years. (laughs) That's a long time and things have piled up. I've been able to do things here and there a little bit, but this is the first time in a very long time, again, that I've been able to do anything substantial. So I'm kind of slowly starting to reorganize everything and deep clean while also trying to keep up with my exercise and cooking meals that support my health. It's a lot, and I still have fatigue. I still have back pain, and I've been finding it hard not to get overwhelmed sometimes, but I'm making progress and that's what matters. I'm not entirely sure why, but I've decided to pick up Michael Crichton books whenever they're on sale, which is funny because I haven't actually loved any of them, although I have appreciated all of them. Jurassic Park, though, is one of my favorite movies of all time, yet the book has never gone on sale and I'm a cheapo, so I still have not read it. But I've read Prey, Congo, The Andromeda Strain, and most recently, The Great Train Robbery, which is what I'm going to talk about today. I've always respected Crichton for his science fiction, which I believe is what he's most famous for, 
I appreciate his emphasis on real science. It gets to the point where when I'm reading his stuff, I don't know where the real science ends and the science fiction begins, which I think is why his books might be in some ways a lot more meaningful than a lot of other science fiction because it directly comments on where technology is now and where it could lead in the future or some ethical concerns we might have about it in the near future. Also, it's just kind of fun. I feel like you learn more about science reading his stuff, even though who knows how much of it's actually accurate. He did apparently have an MD, so he is an educated person, and I tend to trust that a lot of what he's writing about is actually based in reality, and that even the where he deviates from reality usually makes sense within the current scientific mindset. You know, like all this talk about cloning dinosaurs is stuff that scientists actually kind of talk about, and he just takes it the next step, where what if these theories actually panned out and we just took that one extra step that we haven't been able to figure out so far. But the great train robbery isn't actually science fiction, it's historical fiction, and I had no idea he wrote historical fiction, but apparently he did, and he seems to know just as much about Victorian-era London in the great train robbery as he does about dinosaur DNA and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of fun seeing how it's all the same sort of techniques where he often steps back from the plot a little bit and goes on this lovely exposition on all the facts about Victorian London, which are actually pretty interesting. In my experience, he throws facts at you in a way that's actually kind of fun to read, and I found I learned some things about that era, probably that I wouldn't have learned from anyone else, because he interprets things in a uniquely Crichton way that works with the plot, and I really appreciate that. And like a lot of his works, this one does have a strong basis in reality. It's based off a great gold robbery that did actually occur in 1855 on a train. And this is Crichton's version of it. And I have no idea how historically accurate it is. Apparently, he didn't want to be tied down by what actually happened, but he still made sure that the setting was historically accurate. The book follows a man with many names, but we mostly call him Edward Pierce throughout the novel, and we watch him as he stages a train robbery and makes all the preparations for it. In many ways, it is a pretty basic heist story. It has all the same elements, you know, a man gathering a team, gathering intel, making preparations, doing the actual heist, etc., etc. It's not super unpredictable in that sense, but what I appreciated about it was the kind of meta themes it had going, where at the very start of the book, Crichton's telling you about the actual train robbery and how it was this audacious feat and had London talking about it for a while. And from how Crichton tells it, when this actual robbery was pulled off, people almost respected it. They loved hearing about it, even though it was obviously an evil thing to do. You don't rob people, especially in this case, the guy didn't even have a good reason for it. He was already rich. And some of the things he does to get the gold are also pretty despicable. I would argue more despicable than stealing in the first place, but I won't give too much away. So it's like the narrator is criticizing humanity's tendency to glorify evil, so long as it's audacious and cunning and makes a good story. 
But at the same time, the narrator is capitalizing on this dark side of humanity by telling a story of criminal shrewdness. The effect, at least for me, was that when I was reading the book, I was simultaneously drawn in by the story and intrigued by how this man pulled off the robbery, while also wondering if maybe I shouldn't be so enraptured by this evil deed. I've noticed this with other novels that feature questionable protagonists. It's an interesting effect that, at least for me, as soon as someone is a protagonist, I almost cannot help but root for them, even if their goal is horrible and they're trying to, you know, get revenge on someone or steal something or murder someone or what have you. But just the fact that we're reading a book through their perspective makes it hard not to want them to succeed. A good example of this for me is the movie There Will Be Blood, where you have Daniel Day-Lewis play an oil tycoon whose main goal is just to live by himself and not have any dependency on anyone. The movie, to me, makes it clear that this is a horrible goal that does not result in happiness, yet at the same time, this guy is struggling so much for it and I just want him to win. And I felt the same about Edward Pierce in The Great Train Robbery. I think this is yet another testament to the power of narrative, which is often underrated in modern society. And I liked how The Great Train Robbery encourages the reader to step out of the narrative a little bit and assess their own reaction to the story and actually think about our reaction to a despicable character. It got me thinking about these things anyway, which I think is a very good thing. Stories are more powerful than probably most of us understand. They have the ability to shape us and mold us, including our morality. And I appreciate these opportunities to consider how stories are shaping me so that I can hopefully make sure I'm being shaped for the better and not for the worse. All this talk about villains and stories has got me thinking about society's reaction to evil, and more importantly my own because that's of course the only thing I have any control over, and also because that's the only thing I can speak of with any amount of confidence. There's an interesting trend that you may have noticed where we've begun to retell stories from the point of the villain. And I believe increasingly we have more and more sympathetic villainous characters, Maleficent being an example of this. I'm thinking Loki as well, whom I love. And even in stories where the villain isn't outright portrayed as a hero, or at least changing into a hero, they are often and increasingly portrayed as being, well, sympathetic. We get where they're coming from, we can see why they're doing this stuff. A good example of this is the latest Joker movie, which I talked about last week, in which we see a totally evil character in his origins, and we see someone who seems to actually care about his family and is struggling with mental illness and struggling with poverty and people treating him like garbage. And through that, we can kind of in some level at least, understand where he's coming from and almost root for him, which is something I doubt you would see much in mainstream cinema a few decades ago. Before fairly recently, it seemed like most movies had a pretty black and white vision of what evil is, 
My favorite example of this is from A New Hope, which begins by flat out talking about the evil galactic empire and it's creating a Death Star and they flat out call Palpatine sinister. Like, you cannot begin the Star Wars series without a clear sense of who the bad guys are in pretty unequivocal terms. There is no sympathizing with Palpatine. There is no suggestion that the Empire could even be partially good. It's just evil. But I think the farther along in the Star Wars stories we get, we do see a little bit more gray area where we see increasingly more sympathetic villain characters. And we even see some kind of reasonable arguments for why the Empire isn't the worst. So what are we to make of this trend? What does it reflect in society? And is it affecting us? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think like most trends, this seems to be a reaction to previous generations. I guess people are a little tired of the black and white, good versus evil. We know that there's more nuance there. And in a lot of ways, I've been really enjoying this trend. I have a huge soft spot for villains. Some of my all-time favorite characters are villains. But there's definitely a downside, and I think there's also some pretty bad motivations for trying to make evil a bit more sympathetic. I do believe it's become a bit of a double-edged sword. I noticed this in myself most clearly with how my university degree slowly changed me over time and kind of without me noticing in a lot of ways. I have a double major in writing and psychology and my goodness, I feel like psychology in some ways is just the science of sympathizing with evil. That's obviously an exaggerated oversimplification, but hear me out. I grew up in a bit of a Christian bubble. I went to a Christian high school and most of my social events just happened to end up being mostly church-related. I think it's fair to say that I graduated with a pretty strong moral code, albeit a bit black and white, and I've always leaned more to the more heartless, rational side of things than the empathetic, kind side. I think there are two main ways we tend to fail at addressing evil. One is by being overly tolerant of it and affirming everyone's choices no matter how bad. And the other is to be overly harsh and judgmental of others and also ourselves, which is definitely the side of things I fell on when I graduated high school. Studying psychology, though, really helped me move past that. You start learning about why people do what they do and looking into environmental factors and biological factors and it becomes clear that some people just have more temptation to different sins than others. Of course, psychologists don't really use that language of sin, but they do try to scientifically demonstrate the factors of what makes a person good or bad per se or in more quote-unquote scientific terminology, better adjusted or happier or whatever you want to call it. And I am very thankful for psychology for helping me move beyond myself and start understanding others a little bit better and being more understanding of people who have different temptations than I do. I think though I started to take things too far there's a line between understanding what a person's going through and making excuses for their sins. For example, I've always struggled with social anxiety. 
I wouldn't be surprised if I could have got a diagnosis at one point for social anxiety disorder, but you're not supposed to self-diagnose, so... Suffice it to say, I've always dealt with high levels of social anxiety to a problematic extent, and I think I'm with many others that it was a relief to discover that this quote-unquote illness had a name, that social anxiety disorder is a real thing, and it has an unavoidable biological aspect to it. For so long, I had been fighting against my anxiety and trying to be a more outgoing person, or at least to not let my anxiety hold me back, and it really was a relief to start learning that, you know, there's probably part of this that I'm never going to control, and it's not entirely my fault. And as much as it's probably a good thing not to beat yourself up all the time over your failings, because we all have them, I think I moved past this and started using my self-diagnosis, you could say, as an excuse to just continue in my anxiety and not deal with this thing that was causing real problems in my life and the lives of those around me. So I became less anxious about being anxious, but I also wasn't dealing with it. And it took me a while after graduating to detox from this mentality and some others which is actually one of the reasons I'm in some ways thankful for my arthritis because it forced me to take a step back, slow down, think about things, and it also took me out of the secular system in the process to the point where my main source of social interaction was once again church, which for me at the time, I think I really did need. I didn't realize how much my degree had started shaping the way I interact with myself and others. And through that, I was able to sit back and really think about what I just ingested for the five years of my degree and how it was shaping me and how that lined up with God and what he says about the human condition. And I'm not anti-psychology here. I love that field. That's why I have a degree in it. But it definitely has flaws. And for me, studying too much of it without enough reference to God and the church and just good moral teachings left me complacent in my spiritual life. It got me dwelling too much on my own biological limitations and what was humanly possible instead of looking to God and what he's calling me to do, which, by the way, is not humanly possible. He calls us to be perfect just as the Father is perfect, and that, friends, is a high calling, one that, for me, includes, among many other things, not letting social anxiety rule over me. Which is, of course, impossible on my own, but I'm not on my own. There's a reason that God came in human form to the earth, and it's to heal our brokenness and lead us into life. And Christ is the one we're called to imitate, and... That includes how he responds to evil, and what he did wasn't ignore it. He didn't say, this is fine, it's cool that you guys are destroying yourselves and others. He acknowledged it for what it is, didn't make excuses for us, but came to us in our brokenness, assuming human flesh and suffering and dying for us, so that through him we might have life to the full and have the ability to conquer evil in our own lives. And that's what I want to be like, aware of the darkness in the world and in myself, but not scared off by it, to love people in their brokenness, while still fighting evil with all the strength I have. 
But I think, though, if I let this trend of sympathizing with villains shape me too much, it will get harder and harder to accomplish this. I think these kinds of stories do make it easier to accept people and even accept myself and my own darkness, which probably is a good thing. But I think they also make it easier to accept the evil itself, which is not a loving thing to do. So when I'm engaging with these stories, I need to remind myself that there is an objective good and evil, and that nobody has an excuse for choosing evil. It doesn't matter how horrific your upbringing is, but that God loves even the most wretched of sinners, including me, and that I need to respond in kind. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and want to support more content like this, you can do so financially at buymeacoffee.com slash time. You can also help out by giving us a rating and a review on iTunes or your chosen podcast platform. Until next time, rest hard and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.